to Interventions. My name is Eloise Davis. And I'm Daniel Aleman. And today we are talking to Dr. Valentina Arena. Valentina is Reader in Roman History at University College London. Her work has a particular focus on the Republican period, from the foundation of Rome to the Principate of Augustus. She has published widely on Roman rhetoric, on the relationship between Roman political thought and practice, as well as on the reception of Roman ideas in later periods. We're delighted to have her here with us today. Thanks very much, Valentina. Thank you very much for having me. As always on this podcast, our first question is about your own intellectual biography. When did you first become interested in intellectual history, and at what point did you decide to pursue an academic career in this field? I was interested in, in history since very early age. I'm from Florence, and you know this is a city that is imbued in history. I remember quite vividly my one of my first primary school trip <laughs> that was in Piazza della Repubblica, which is the center of Florence, where there are the two main roads that are perpendicular to one another, and being told that these are the center of the centuriation or the foundation of Florentia, so of Florence as a Roman colony, and being bewildered by the idea that I was walking through the same streets that, you know, over 2,000 years ago had been walked through by ancient Romans. That was combined later on with learning about not only Latin and Greek, but also ancient philosophy. Although I suspect that your idea of being interested in, in intellectual history and how I came about that was very much at the beginning of my PhD in the UK in London, at University College London. My supervisor, Michael Crawford, who has a completely different approach to the study of the ancient world, had asked me to read <laughs> the whole corpus of Cicero's letters, which means, you know, all letters to Atticus, uh, his, one of his closest friends, his brother, and the familiares, so his friends. A diligent student, <laughs> so uh, off I went. And halfway through, I start questioning how come there were a number of policies that were clearly coming through these pages that Cicero seemed to have supported, or at times even opposed, advocating the principle of liberty. And the vast majority of times, it didn't really match with my understanding of Roman Republican liberty. So when I went back to him and asked, so what do you think is going on here? So he looked at me and said, if you wanted, you can have a look at this article by Quentin Skinner, on, I think the title was The Principles and the Practice of Opposition. It was in 1974, and now it's been revised in Visions of Politics in 2002. And so he said, well, you know, if you wanted, you can have a look at it and, and see what you make of it. 
And that was really the beginning <laughs> of a new world for me. I, I still remember quite vividly really being uh, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a small flat <laughs> in the central London and reading this article over and over again and being completely bewildered by all that. So that, I think, is perhaps when you <laughs> imagine, I mean, your idea of intellectual history becoming an important element of my uh, intellectual interests. In terms of pursuing an academic career, at some point it became kind of obvious since I had this strong interest that either would have been a career in a museum or uh, within an academic institution. So, I mean, these were the two ways I would have liked to pursue. And while I was doing my PhD, I also worked at the British Museum something that I truly enjoyed. Although <laughs> I was working on Hellenistic coins and many people, many can imagine, I mean, I myself, for once, <laughs> for one, I thought that numismatic might not be the most exciting of topics. <laughs> I was actually pulled over, <laughs> loved working on those coins. And, you know, sometimes I spent days in the museum without realizing what was happening outside, the weather, I mean, most likely it was raining, but still I had not seen the light <laughs> and uh, and enjoyed it very much. So it was either one of the two options with perhaps a preference for an academic setting. And here I am. <laughs> much of your work focuses on Cicero, whom you have already mentioned. He's indeed one of the major figures in the history of political thought, but largely as a consequence of his legacy in the Renaissance and beyond. What is your impression of Cicero having studied him in his own time as an ancient historian, as you've just pointed out? Do you find him an appealing figure or an ambiguous one? I do work on Cicero and he plays a considerable part in many of my investigations. However, this is mainly due to the fact that he is the main source if one is interested in the late Republic, the period I'm most interested in. I have to admit that I really don't like the man as such. And uh, although we have to be a bit benevolent <laughs> uh, uh, towards him in a way, because uh, given how much we know about him and uh, given also the nature of you know, the letters that we have, the sources at our disposal, we, we know a lot also about the weaknesses of the man. And, uh, you know, for example, I very much like Caesar. But, uh, you know, what we do have that Caesar has written is not extremely personal in terms of his own <laughs> emotions, worries, fears. Caesar was obsessed with his own reputation with his own reputation at the time, as well as posterity. That was an important point for him. And so, yes, I don't have a specific liking for, for the man. And also, and again, here we are very much in the field of personal taste. I don't particularly like his Latin, which, you know, it might be almost an heresy to say, but I find the concinitas, so the symmetry, that we have in the text. And of course, certainly, especially when one is a student, it makes a much easier translation than Tacitus. But reading Tacitus in terms of language, I always found it more rewarding in a way. It remains that Cicero was a central figure for the late Republic. He had close relations with Caesar, Pompey, Crassus, any of the main protagonists 
of the first century BC. And he himself, of course, he would have pointed out, uh, you know, he, he reached the consulship in 63 BC, and he himself would, uh, if he were here, he would tell us that he was the, one of the major players. And to a certain extent, it was. His most interesting work in relation to history of political thought was written at the time when things were not going as he would have wished for. And this is, again, a rather common trait in uh, many of these thinkers, let's think about Machiavelli. But at the same time, he came up with a number of, or he refined throughout the second half of the first century BC, his political program in different ways. And each time from in terms of the history of political thought, the contributions are highly stimulating. As a politician, however, he lost ultimately. And I remember not that long ago, I was, I was in Milan giving a talk there. And one of the questions was more like a comment by this gentleman who said, Oh, I wish we had a Cicero nowadays here. And that because Italy was approaching its election. And I did point out that actually Cicero lost. You know, you might have been a great thinker. So you might think about, oh, we wish to have politicians who are able to articulate their political programs also along those more theoretical lines. However, <laughs> he might not have been the kind of leader that one wished to have. Not the least, you know, cost his life. Your first book examines the importance of the idea of liberty in the late Rome Republic, and you show that this abstract ideal was crucial for the ways in which politicians in the Rome Republic fought for concrete political proposals. Can you elaborate a bit on how our understanding of Roman politics changes if we take into account the world of ideas? Thank you very much. This is really an important, huge question. I think that the study of ancient ideas within the practice of Roman politics is essential to shed light at least on three different aspects. The first one, which is the one I have explored in Libertas and the Practice of Politics, is that by looking at the value, the conception of Republican liberty, it gives us the possibility to understand why politicians in the first century BC, for the sake of argument, 70, the time when the tribunes of the plebs regained their power, down to 52, when Pompey was sole consul, and arguably could be considered one of the potential dates to ascribe the end of the Republic, or at least the transformation of the Republic into something else. Of course, there are many other dates that one could take into account. Why these politicians pursued certain specific policies, such as the opposition to land distribution, the opposition to the granting of extraordinary powers to individual magistrates, as well as opposition to the implementation of the so-called Senatus Consultum Multimum, as a state of emergency, let's say, that was declared unilaterally by the Senate. So by taking into account the role played by Libertas, we can find one of the causes why these politicians magnified these proposals. And this is very much along the lines of Quentin Skinner's article that I mentioned earlier on. However, within even more specific context of the late Republic, what I think 
paying attention to ideas as, such as, for example, liberty, give us is to add a further dimension to the relation between Greece and Rome. So if you wanted to, the wider debate of Roman imperialism and how Rome related to Greece. What I have argued in the book is that all these politicians worked on the basis of a shared understanding of liberty. The discourse on the libertas was informed by Greek and Roman political thought. Therefore, if we think about drawing on uh, Greek philosophy, we can see the articulation of true traditions of liberty. They ended up playing a part in the actual working of Roman politics. And perhaps the third way in which focusing on uh, libertas in studying the practice of politics shed a light on the role of the people. That is, if we focus on the idea of liberty in the first century and how it changes its meaning towards the end of the Republic and it gains a more universal appeal that is centered on the eudicium of the individual, on the judgment of the individual as opposed to the rule of law, what we witness there is therefore a shift in the meaning. And when we try to work out what's happening there, how it was possible that this shift took place alongside the influence, of course, of Greek Stoic philosophy and certain specific speeches that Cicero gave before the Senate as well as the people that are now in the Philippics. What we really witness is also a specific role played by the Roman people in accepting this new meaning. So what's happening there, and it is very well explained by Varro and Quintilian in their linguistic analysis, is that for a new meaning to take place, what they say is we need the auctoritas of the individual. What they mean by it is that we need an individual with auctoritas to propose a new meaning. The second step, they claim, is that what we need is the consensus multorum, so the consensus of the many, the many that they understand as those who use the language more widely, so not necessarily the educated elite. They say it would be enough to be those people who can understand that viocurus is a compound word, is a word that derives from vicus. If you know the language well enough just to, to understand almost by ear that this is a relation that is fine, that you belong to the multi whose consensus is necessary to accept this innovation, this linguistic innovation. And then they highlight that there is a third passage that is the moment when this, on the basis of this consensus, this idea becomes a consuetudo, so a habit of the speaking community. And this is the moment, therefore, when a proposed alteration of the meaning of libertas, proposed by, in this specific case, Cicero, is then accepted by the wider community. Now, in doing so, what we end up doing, if we, if we go back to the idea that ideas are also one of the engines of political change, is that we identify the Roman people also as one of the forces behind that change. Regardless of how many people turned up at the assemblies, how many people really exercised their power to vote, it remains 
that if we think about the Roman people as a, the, the widest speaking community that not only accepts but authorizes these conceptual changes, we also highlight their role in the working of Roman politics. So apart from your more strictly ancient historical work, you've also engaged in a debate about the uses of Roman liberty in contemporary political theory. Now, political theorists have very prominently revived the Ciceronian idea of liberty, as you've also mentioned, as the absence of arbitrary domination. But you argue that actually Rome can offer us more than just one way of thinking about political freedom. What other notions of liberty are there and how could these be useful for our political thinking today? As I mentioned earlier on, when I read the first article by Quentin Skinner, I was really bowled over by the relevance that all of a sudden I thought that I, as an ancient historian, had in this world. And that gave me this sense, it empowered me. It gave me the idea that I was not doing a work that could be derogatory defined as antiquarian, but actually had some relevance. Now, not all ancient historians or classicists, for that matter, would think that this is important. If anything, in some cases, that would be actually more problematic for them than anything else. But for me, for me, it was important. And that gave me, that, that sparked my interest and seeing what else was out there. As I mentioned earlier on, I, I really try with all my forces to go behind Cicero to see what else is there behind this towering figure that to a certain extent occludes our view from uh, what else might have been happening within the intellectual landscape of, of the first century. And therefore, I focused on the debates on sumptuary laws that were introduced in the third century BC and passed throughout the second as well as the first century. And, and there, reconstructing the debate in favor or against the implementations of these laws, I did identify traces, at least, of different ways of conceptualizing liberty that were radically different from uh, this idea of liberty as non-domination or non-dependence. And most of all, what is, I think, the most important aspect of this idea of liberty as the absence of arbitrary interference is that in, in Rome, it uh, describes a status as opposed to a range of choices. However, in reading the debate in favor and against uh, sumptuary legislations, I could uh, see traces of conceptions of liberty as absence of legal constraints upon the private life of citizens. So citizens who really opposed to be told by the state that they could not eat peacock's eggs. This is really what for them impinged on their liberty, as well as the idea of liberty as absence of constraints from one's own passions that went together with liberty as the capacity to pursue something that was worth pursuing for the well-being of the community. So in this specific case, liberty still resided in the uh, supremacy of the rule of law, as in the case of liberty as non-domination, 
but had also a different aspect. I mean, the, the element creating the interference are viewed as one's own passions. And so in order to be free, one has to have the capacity to pursue something that is worthwhile pursuing for yourself as well as the community. And then, of course, yes, there is the almost omnipresent understanding of our liberty as a status of non-slavery. This is, I think, the way in which a Roman would put it. Now, whether this should necessarily be revived in our world, I mean, this is something that we should use to consider in our contemporary philosophy, it's really not for me to say. In a sense, I am an historian or I am an ancient historian, and therefore I search for the discovery of, of lost meaning. What I think is interesting to do is then to use the tools of analytical philosophy to filter out what is specifically historical in this context and try to translate that, the remains, into general categories that then we can use to address problems that we ourselves experience, or we can use them as tools to think about contemporary problems. And I wanted to explore this issue a bit uh, more, and therefore I have organized a conference whose proceedings are really about to come out for the special issue of the Journal of um, History of European Ideas, where conceptions of ancient liberty were explored in different ancient societies, very much with the aim to understand whether beside Rome there was something else that the ancient world can offer us. And there is much that is interesting there about, for example, religious liberty or liberty of groups as opposed to the understanding of liberty as the individual liberty of the citizen and the liberty of the commonwealth, as we find really in Republican Rome. So also on the relevance of Roman political thought to the modern day, uh, we were also wondering about your writings on rhetoric, because you've argued that for the Romans, rhetoric, the art of persuasion, was viewed as an aid to reason rather than antithetical to it, as we more often assume today. In the last few years, we've seen the advent of what many consider a new phase in the history of human communication, driven by social media, sound bites, and 24-hour news. Do you think we can still learn something from Roman ideas of rhetoric in this very different age? Now, there is no doubt that there are differences in terms of the modalities of communication between our time and the, and the Romans. However, I think that there is something quite important that we can learn from reading the rhetorical treatises, not only by Cicero, but also Quintilian and others. That is the idea that there is not a, a reconcilable dichotomy between rhetoric and reason. Cicero is really explicit about the aim of the orator, in the De Oratore, the Orator, the Brutus, in, in many of his works. And he says that the aim of the orator has to be to carry, so to teach, to inform the audience about the facts, delectare, so to please the audience, to, to entertain him, to charm the audience with a pleasant narrative or playful wit. And the, the third point is really flectere, so inflame these very emotions. 
But the key point that they make, that Cicero makes and that Gaston has highlighted, is that emotions have a cognitive content and therefore can be integral to the formulation of an argument. So what Cicero says is that why do we feel fear? Also, why our audience, being him a lawyer who has to make sure that the audience feels fear for whatever the situation he wants to present, he feels fear because it perceives the situation he's in of danger. And that creates the emotion of fear. Or why do we experience the emotion of love? And he says it's because the individual who feels love for someone else, perceives himself or herself in a situation in which this other person looks after his own interest. So emotions, according to Cicero, have as a starting point the rational understanding, or if you want, the perceived <laughs> understanding of the situation we are in. If we fully understand this point and we make it ours, first of all, we stop feeling victims of spin doctors and we can readdress the true issue that we have to consider when we want to make our decisions because it's no longer out of fear of the other, very much what we are experiencing nowadays across Europe, but rather is why we perceive ourselves in a situation that makes us feel fear. So this is, if we really embrace the, the relation between emotions and deliberation as presented in this rhetorical treatise, I think we feel less cheated and more empowered in making our own decisions. We have one final question. What are you currently working on? Is there a new book project in the works? So currently I'm working on a monograph on Roman constitutionalism that focuses on a specific constitutional devices and procedures concerning the power of government and the magistrates in Rome, which I would like to set within the wider context of the philosophical ideals that underpinned its formation. The main source for this work that I would like to use is a Varro, and the antiquarians. So I'd like to move away from Roman constitutionalism has highlighted or has investigated by Polybius, Cicero, and all the other texts that we, we tend to use. And instead, I would like to use the antiquarians, so these authors of scholarly work, learned treatises, they are usually descriptive as opposed to chronological in the structure. And they are characterized by a lack of literary pretension and uh, who use, and quote, documents and report different interpretations. Now, one of the problems about using the antiquarians for this kind of research is that so far this material has not been collected in one edition. So actually my project is two projects at once. So on the one <laughs> hand, I really want to explore the nature of Roman constitutionalism via the lens of this material. I mean, these were the people who essentially made up these rules and regulations. Okay. But on the other, I am also working towards an edition 
of the Republican antiquarians that will start with Varro and therefore I edited a couple of volumes on Varro because I needed to get a sense of what was happening in the field and before moving on to the actual edition which is my current preoccupation. That sounds fascinating and we're looking forward to all of your forthcoming works and also of course to the special issue that you've mentioned earlier. Thanks very much for talking to us Valentina. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for today. Thanks very much for tuning in. We'll be back soon with another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. <laughs>